Hello boys and girls welcome to this episode of Seeking Satya podcast where I interview entrepreneurs artists musicians writers athletes scientists doctors and more from eclectic fields in the hopes that we can put aside their superhuman stature and learn from their human abilities like building powerful habits being curious unafraid to try new things and much more Today my guest is Karthish Mantiram Karthish is an assistant professor in chemical engineering at MIT. He received his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Stanford University and his PhD in chemical engineering from UC Berkeley. Karthish's research and teaching have been recognized with several awards, including the 3M Non-Tenured Faculty Award, Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science, and the C. Michael Moore Outstanding Undergraduate Teaching Award. Karthish, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Originally born in uh, Austin, Texas, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh my parents uh had moved to Austin about a year before I was born. Um and so my sister was born uh, in India uh in Palayam Kotte in Tamil Nadu. So, uh, uh uh people often refer to Palayam Kotte as the Oxford of uh South India. <laughs> um and so she left there when she was a few years old. Uh, my parents moved here and uh that was very much a, a new beginning uh for our family. Well, growing up, I mean, in Austin um just curious like were you convinced that you would actually become a professor at MIT and do research solving massive problems I had I had no idea at, a, at an early age that such a thing was was possible I think it it always felt <laughs> out of reach um as a young kid I never really felt like the smart person in the room um in general uh and uh, I think it was only when I started to realize uh in uh you know in middle school especially that uh if i really put my mind to something that then i could kind of gravitate towards excellence that things kind of started to click um mm. but my my dad uh uh is uh is a professor and so i think that in some ways at a young age um uh inspired me although there was like a very sharp transition so at, at a very very young age uh when someone would ask me you know what i wanted to do when i grew up Uh, I would always say that I want to be a garbage man. <laughs> so this was a, a great uh, concern for my parents and others who were worried, you know, what's going to come of this kid when he grows up, right? He doesn't seem to have much in in the in in, uh, in terms of aspiration or definitely desire. going to hit that goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there was just something about these big trucks that were driving around, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of you know uh, getting to operate big machinery, and that just really uh, captivated my mind. Um, and then. Uh, I I think uh I went sharply from wanting to be uh, a garbage man to saying one day I wanted to be a professor. So that was a, <laughs> that was a, a big change that happened probably almost overnight. <laughs> uh, uh in some ways you are helping clear, uh, clear out some of the garbage in on the planet I think. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I think it's, uh it's it's fitting in a way that uh you know that original connection uh was there because you know it, it's sort of become a big part of our research even though that wasn't something that i necessarily thought would be a big part of my research you know going back many years um it's been a, a gradual realization that uh some of the fundamental discoveries that our lab has had uh and some of the projects that i've been involved in that these could be reconfigured to have a big impact in terms of how we make all the chemicals and materials that we use in our everyday lives all these uh all the from the clothing that we're wearing to the food that we eat uh to the plastics that we use um how do we make all these things beginning with very basic feedstock so there is there is this origin story that i guess that goes back to being a very young kid that i 
uh, not even sure that I fully recognize that that's the case. <laughs> Just before we move on, I wanted to touch on one thing you mentioned, which is uh, like you never had that um, confidence, um, you know, in middle school growing up that you are something, I mean, or you're smart enough. How, how did you cope with something like that? How did you handle yeah. that kind of a thing and to get into this growth mindset? Yeah. So I think what I benefited from very much at a young age is that, um, you know, my parents always exercised unconditional love. Yeah. Uh, so their, their love for me and uh, their uh, support for me was not preconditioned on doing well <laughs> at anything. So uh, just because I wasn't necessarily, you know, doing the very best in classes at a very young age um, didn't bother them. Or if I did poorly on a given exam, um, uh, they weren't uh, about to, uh, you know, condition our relationship or uh-huh. any sort of uh, uh, benefits to me on the basis of how I did in these things. Um, yeah. And so that motivation for me like to feel differently very much happened uh, when I saw my sister doing very well. So uh-huh. my sister was four years older than me. Uh, and I remember uh, her winning some uh, awards um, uh, you know, she was, uh, I think, a valedictorian in uh, middle school, and uh, she was doing very, very well in school. And I had this moment where I was like, hey, wait, well, we're genetically not all that dissimilar, so shouldn't I be able to do this? And it, 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 uh, that, that's the moment at which it hit me. But my sister spent a lot of time with me as a kid, uh, just making learning fun. Um, and so she would design uh, lesson plans when I was a kid. Uh, and sit me down next to all my teddy bears and uh, <laughs> uh, and and go up to a chalkboard and uh, start going through math and going through writing and correcting my grammar and all sorts of stuff. And she just loved education. And so I think just being near her and someone who uh, cared so deeply about learning, it just made it seem like learning was fun, even though I wasn't particularly great at it uh, at a very young age. But gradually, I think that had an impact on my own ability to to do things in my my mom also spent a lot of time with me in the, in the summers um, trying to get me to uh, learn math and do things. I was often uh, uh, not very compliant <laughs> at a young age uh, uh, in that. My sister was much more disciplined in that respect, like learning uh, the Thummel language, learning how to read and write Thummel and all these things. And I wasn't as compliant, but uh, my mom still made a lot of effort at a young age to try to get me to uh, have that interest. <laughs> Neat. Having, having that um close sort of like a person that you can look up to made seems like made a big difference and like it is not something far off and distant somebody on the pedestal somewhere can do this but actually my sister is doing it I should be able to do this and having that sort of a role model and the family to support you that's amazing definitely Uh, absolutely um, I think if I'm not mistaken you got married recently. Yes. Uh, congratulations July, yeah. on your wedding. <laughs> you. uh, I, you. I think you know where I'm going with this, but yeah. a mighty flash mob proposal yeah. video. <laughs> it was really fun to watch. Oh, thank you. Um, you may be the only professor when Googled the top result. <laughs> One of the top results would be a flash mob dance. Uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, this idea um, came about last summer. Um, I was talking to my sister about uh, proposing uh, to my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I told her my idea, which was that I was going to propose in front of my class. Uh, And so I was going to go through a lecture and uh, teach uh, a lecture about uh, heat conduction in an annulus, uh, which was supposed (laughs) to be shaped uh, uh, essentially like a, like a ring. Uh, And so I, uh, 
uh, I was going to go through this lecture and then um, uh, at the end, then, you know, uh, walk up, uh, you know, the aisle of the classroom and propose to her in front of the class. And I told my sister this and she said, are you sure this is the best use of instructional time? <laughs> and that was her very subtle way of saying this is not a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, so she actually came up with the idea that I should do a flash mob instead. Uh, oh. And my sister, in fact, choreographed it. And I think this this is a continuing theme, right? Just uh, how much of an impact like she's mm. had um, on, on my life in terms of uh, getting me to do things that I otherwise wouldn't do. Um, but she uh, put together these videos and uh, about, I think, 40 to 50 of our friends flew out uh, from uh, all different places, a lot from California. That's where a lot of our friends are. Um, yeah. But everyone flew out here and came here. And on a, uh, on a Saturday in October uh, last year, um, uh, you know, it was phenomenal just watching your somehow. somehow managed to keep it a surprise, which is hard. Oh, uh, my yeah. wife usually figures out everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. and also, it, yeah. I'm sure it took a little bit of somehow, somehow it all worked out. practicing and I, it's uh, you know, putting it all together. Really yeah. great job. Thank you. <laughs> Giving yeah. it a secret. Yeah. Dancing is uh, something that doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> Uh, so if I can dance, anyone can dance. Uh, so that's a testament to my sister's ability to teach. I think. <laughs> oh, it was it was phenomenal, and um, it it could be a pretty solid MIT hack, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you have to fit in with the hacker culture here, right? Uh, uh, and that's something that I think has given me great joy is just how people uh, at MIT uh, find so many dimensions to excel in. Um, I think we we all, mm. we always remember the technical dimension for excellence yeah. that's at the forefront of people's mind it's a part of the name of the institution um but there's so much richness in life and as you get to know people here you realize that you know uh people are good at all sorts of uh unusual and and special things some of which are uh, deeply cultural uh, a part of their own heritage uh things that they picked up from their friends uh, and people find ways to excel multi-dimensionally here that's something that uh, I've been very uh, happy to learn about in the time that I've uh, that I've been here now, almost three years since I since I started here. Sweet, sweet, really, absolutely agree. Um, your work, awards, and research is outstanding. I won't even pretend to know what you really do; it's uh, too complicated for me, really. <laughs> but like, if I were to ask you, like, how would you describe this to a six-year-old? Yeah, like what you do. Definitely, yeah. So. Uh, the way uh, we describe our work is that uh, if you're starting with air, water, and renewable electricity, uh, how can you make all the chemicals and materials that you use in your everyday life? Uh, so one in, uh, in this case would start with uh, CO2 from air. So you have a carbon atom source from the CO2. Uh, you then have dinitrogen gas. Uh, that's your nitrogen atom source. Uh, and then from water, you get oxygens and hydrogens. Uh, so you now have four atoms, uh, carbons, uh, hydrogens, oxygens, and nitrogens, with which you can start to stitch together relatively complex molecules. So uh, our group is finding a way to use electricity to drive those transformations. So you can take electricity uh, from a solar panel or from a wind turbine. These are clean sources, uh, sustainable sources, uh, and it, as long as you feed it air and water, uh, you can start to make uh, a fuel, like something that you can put into your car. Um, that fuel, because it's made from CO2 and water, when you then combust it and release CO2, it's actually carbon neutral overall. So this uh, could be uh, a solution to the issues that we face with global warming. Uh, another example uh, is taking nitrogen from the air, 
reacting it with water, using electricity, and making ammonia. And ammonia is a key part of fertilizers. Uh, and so there's this ability now to uh, perhaps be able to deliver fertilizers to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where fertilizers have traditionally been very expensive to access. So those are at least two examples of uh, targets that we're pushing. Uh, there are others like plastics uh, that we can also now make in these sorts of routes. Um, but this is a very sort of nascent uh, area of research in which uh, we're just starting to kind of push that frontier. Sweet. I, uh, I, I can imagine why you've uh, become a, an amazing teacher, I think. I mean, you explained the pretty complex things to me in, in a language that I can really understand. Um, I, all yeah, I teaching is, is something I just deeply, deeply enjoy. Um, my, I think this comes from my dad uh, mm-hmm. as well. So my, my sister in many ways, you know, taught me a lot when I was young, but my dad has like this ability to electrify people in the classroom. Um, so, you know, he's uh, won like so many awards for teaching and I um, have always just been impressed by how he breaks down like very, very complicated topics uh, into very simple, digestible uh, in a very simple, digestible manner that feels very casual uh, in yeah. communication. Um, so it's always been a very special thing that he that he imparted, I think, uh, to me and my sister. Wow! Uh, just just briefly talking about your dad and your sister, they have been a tremendous amount of influence on you. It looks like um, your dad also has been uh, teaching and it's got like Mantiram Labs at UT, I yeah. believe, uh, very similar yeah. to what you have at MIT. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's a family business now, I, I guess. <laughs> we, we just educated. <laughs> um, and is your sister also into teaching as a career now? or because uh, Yeah, so she's like... a, a pediatric infectious disease doctor uh, at the National Institutes of Health. Um, and so her work is uh, about 80% research, 20% clinical. Uh, but teaching's always been uh, important for her in terms of mentorship and training students. Um, and passing on knowledge. Uh, so that's a big part of uh, what she does in that role uh, as well. Perfect. And, and talking about your um, you know, uh, approach to putting these different chemical things together to make something uh, of value, like, can, can you speak a little bit about your approach to experimenting? Um, I, I think yeah. one of the key things that I learned when I was at MIT and I took a couple of courses, actually one was from... Uh, Tom Romer from Harvard, he talked a lot about product experimentation. I'm a product manager by profession. I love to, you know, experiment and iterate and Mm -hmm. learn from the customers and build stuff that they actually want to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to uh, hear about your approach to experimenting, whether in uh, in your work or even in life. Like, it looks like uh, you've your approach to a lot of things seems to be experimenting, learning, doing things, trying out things. Can Absolutely, you speak a yeah. bit about that? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I think very core to my approach uh, is uh, what I think of as Socratic dialogue. Um, oh. So I'm someone who uh, intrinsically asks questions as opposed to making statements most of the time. Um, at least when I'm interacting and working with my students, like I value questions uh, much more than I do uh, my own immediate judgments. Um, and that's very, for me, it's conditioned by the fact that uh, when a mentor uh, makes a statement, uh, it's often taken uh, with great seriousness as being truth. <laughs> and uh, and the, the greatest thing in science, I think, and, and maybe in all aspects of life, is realizing that something that you believe for in a very, for a very, very long period of time turns out to not be true. 
uh, when oh, we uh, uh, take something that's conventional wisdom and we show that it's not correct, uh, that that assumption uh, that we had or the physics that we expected, that all of it needs to be rewritten. Those are the most enlightening moments. Um, sometimes when we make statements uh, uh, and clear judgments on something, uh, we inhibit that process that someone who's a newcomer coming into an area uh, can see something in a very different way. So that to me is one of the most exciting things is when a, a new student is coming into the group or a new postdoc is coming into the group, uh, they may not have what we consider to be uh, experience uh, that leads to wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they have wisdom because they can see something in a very new way. Uh, and even as students continue in our group, right, we have to always make sure that we're creating this environment in which um, ideas are valued, even from, the, even from someone who feels that they don't have expertise on a topic. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that is important. So a lot of that is, is done through questioning. So whether it's in the classroom or uh, in my own office, uh, we're often going through like a series of questions and trying to answer them together and figure things out at the whiteboard. Um, that for me has been sort of a very important approach uh, to science uh, is to frame things uh, in that way. Wow. So sort of how do you develop this beginner's mindset? I mean, like for first principles thinking or beginner's mindset, <clears throat> uh, sometimes it might be perceived as maybe this person doesn't know. Doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so uh, it, it very much requires that we be, that we feel humble in our mm. approach, right? Because um, there is a tendency to make statements because you want to prove that you know something. That you know, I see. That you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it takes a lot of practice uh, and... Encourage, uh, too, I guess. Encourage, too, I think, yeah. There's a, there's a degree of humility. And so I mm. often try to remind everyone in our group that, um, you know, Mother Nature knows all these answers. Um, uh, and uh, we have to be humbled in the face of Mother Nature to learn what nature already knows. Um, and uh, the laws of physics already exist. Uh, the, the physics that govern these processes are already out there. Um, just we have to always be willing to be proven wrong and uh, to be open-minded in that respect. But, you, but you're absolutely right. It's a very different culture uh, of doing science. Um, but different people thrive in different types of environments, right? Um, I think some thrive in this uh, open-ended, question-asking, Socratic mode of discovery. Uh, others... Um, uh, thrive uh, in a very different environment. So we, we kind of, we often attract people who like that mode of uh, operation uh, to our to our group. Perfect, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, <clears throat> I really appreciate the Socratic method in, in terms of asking questions. I find questions, asking the right questions actually could lead us to something more valuable than um, pretending to know all the answers, absolutely. I did a little bit of digging on uh, kind of things you've been doing and you're involved with the U.S. Army Research mm -hmm. Labs, MIT, Energy Initiative, mm -hmm. uh, sustainability and environmental friendly um, fuel production and distribution and things like that. Um, one of the things that struck me, and I, I don't pretend to know any of the stuff that actually happens, but electrochemical versus thermochemical, and it looks like there is yeah. some distinction that you're trying to make, which is what we've been doing is mostly thermochemical and trying to raise yeah. the temperatures and pressures and create this, uh, uh, like, can you uh, at a high level talk a little bit about the difference that you're trying to bring Definitely. in? Definitely. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, at the very heart of the lab uh, is uh, understanding how uh, conventional chemical reactions, so uh, a, a process in which you take uh, one molecule and convert it into another, uh, this conversion has historically always been done with temperature and pressure. 
these are the, uh, the variables that are most easily accessible for industry. So you place uh, a molecule in a big vat, uh, and just like uh, cooking uh, you know, a pot of food, right? You, yeah. you turn up the temperature, or you put it in your Instapot, right? In the Instapot, <laughs> you're using temperature and pressure, <laughs> and uh, that you know shows us how potent pressure is, right? That we can mm. uh, greatly accelerate, you know, cooking bell or something, yeah. right? As, as long as we do it with uh, not just temperature but pressure as well. Oh. Uh, chemical reactions in industry are done in the same way: temperature and pressure. That's uh, that's how oh. uh, you know the oil that we uh, or the gasoline that we put into our car. Uh, comes through processes that involve temperature and pressure. Um, the uh, plastics uh, that we use to uh, carry items or the water bottles that we drink out of, uh, all those uh, plastics also come out of pressures, uh, come out of processes that involve temperature and pressure. So it's uh, just like an industrial Instapot that's doing uh, all these all these sorts of transformations. <laughs> <Industrial> <laughs> it, it, tur it turns out, though, that uh, temperature and pressure are somewhat limited uh, in mm. terms of what they can do. Uh, Electrochemical potential, so that's that's just voltage simply, mm -hmm. uh, is a much more potent variable uh, for driving reactions. So uh, a reaction, uh, for instance, in industry that could be done with uh, hundreds of bar of pressure. So that's uh, a pressure which is uh, hundreds of times that of atmospheric pressure, which is actually quite dangerous. Oh, wow. uh, can be replaced with a very small voltage, uh, less than that of a double A battery. Uh, wow. So it's remarkable, right? A double A battery can do uh, what would require uh, a vessel that's at uh, a very high temperature or pressure. And that's, uh, that's why our lab uh, is trying to remove temperature and remove pressure uh, and replace those uh, with voltage. So probably in some instances, you know, we've, we've heard of uh, accidents, pressure cookers, even in cooking, right? Every now yeah. and then uh, something happens and you'll hear something. In fact, just last year, my uh, uh, wife's uh, grandma uh, had an accident with a pressure cooker and ended up mm -hmm. with like, a lot of burns as a result. So, um, you know, these things that happen occasionally, they also happen in industry. So uh, reactors in industry that are pressurized and heated also uh, explode, go off, um, and, and there's a significant safety hazard uh, associated with that. So voltage uh, can be a much safer way uh, of driving those reactions. Um, the other sort of benefit is that uh, you can run reactions at smaller scales. So uh, rather than building a plant that costs one to three billion dollars, uh, that's how much a lot of chemical plants cost today. You can replace that with a much smaller uh, amount of capacity and incrementally add on capacity as you go. And that's something that a, an electrochemical process, a voltage-driven process, uh, allows you to do more easily. So this is sort of the chemical manufacturing of the future. It won't be done in a centralized fashion, we believe. Uh, it'll instead be done close to where one wants to use those chemicals and materials. So uh, in the same way that 3D printing is really getting a lot of traction, that mm -hmm. we can make parts close to where we need them, soon oh, we might actually be making the resins uh, and all those materials and chemicals that we need close to where we need them as well. So distributed manufacturing is going to continue to become something. Uh, and electrochemistry or voltage is a big part of enabling that uh, to occur. Got it. Got it. I have two follow-up questions on that. One uh, is the metaphors. How do you pick up these metaphors that you come up with, like Instapot of industry? And like, those are so powerful. Like, uh, it, they make it so simple, and I, yet I can understand what you're talking about, even though I don't know the domain. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, is metaphors uh, part of your teaching methodology because it's so impressive uh, how you can explain a complex concept in a simple way 
I think a lot of it actually comes from my mom. My mom is someone who speaks like in very plain language. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, uh, the, uh, my, my mom is just like, can, can be very clear and honest and um, has an ability to, like in very complex situations to find like the distilled components of that. Uh, and and that uh, you know, is something that I think I try to carry with myself uh, uh, and converse. My mom is also a very conversational person. Uh, she's the outgoing person of the family. Uh, everyone else is somewhere on that spectrum of being uh, somewhere between introverted and extroverted. Uh, my mom is that person who like really wants to communicate with people and uh, share with them things that she understands and knows and bring them in. And, uh, but she's someone who thinks in that way, right? Of how do you break mm. something down? yeah it's uh i mean unless you really understand it you're not able to explain it that easily right i think that's a it's a beautiful uh characteristic of a good teacher i guess the second question follow-up i had based on what you were talking about earlier was electricity and the double a battery if it was that simple or not simple sorry if it was that obvious why hasn't it been done and what what is the hurdle right like what what is this is the critical question that you've honed in on. So uh, it, it turns out that the ability to run chemical reactions using electricity is something that goes back to the mid 1800s. Uh, so the very earliest work on uh, some of the earliest work on organic synthesis and learning how to make more complex organic molecules actually involved electrochemistry. Uh, there were in fact departments of organic chemistry and electrochemistry that were jointly named as such in the early days uh, of this field. Uh, In the the decades that followed, uh, organic synthesis started to involve less and less electricity and instead started to use temperature, pressure, uh, more advanced reagents. Uh, These other methods became more viable uh, Mm -hmm. at scale for making things that uh, humanity and civilization needed. Um, And we're now in a different era. Uh, What's happening now is that uh, electricity, renewable electricity, is becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, and it's the cost of those renewable electrons that's changing everything um, and our desire to be sustainable. So uh, if we were okay with um, uh, you know, using temperature and pressure, which actually often also generates large carbon dioxide footprints, uh, we would be okay with the way that we make chemicals today. Uh, but there's a clear driver in terms of reducing electricity costs uh, and a desire to decarbonize chemical production, right? to remove that CO2 footprint that's motivating uh, a resurgence of these technologies. Um, we also have so many more tools now that they didn't have in the mid-1800s yeah. <laughs> uh, for understanding <laughs> this chemistry. For uh, I know there, there have been such revolutions in electronics, right, that yeah. make it easier to control electricity and use it uh, in a productive manner. So uh, we're very much leveraging you know, so many things that have happened um, since some of those earliest realizations for new chemistries that we're now, now developing. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, it's sort of similar to, uh, if I were to put it, like, I mean, in terms of what's happening in the Tesla space or the electric car space, where, you know, we were so reliant on the oil and uh, gas, but then we're sort of slowly moving away from that into electric-based cars and transportation Definitely. methodologies. Interesting. Yeah, and it's uh, such a re- remarkable story, I think, to think about how that happened. Um, so much early scientific work um, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, my, my dad was actually very involved in the early work on lithium-ion batteries uh, wow. going back in the early days. 
uh, back before it was a popular topic when it was hard to get funding for these topics because no one understood, you know, what is this fundamental science going to be yeah. good for? <laughs> um, and so he had a lot of contributions in the era that are you know, things that we now, uh, you know, carry in our pockets that we now drive. That have, uh, but, we, but I think the important thing to, to see in that is that uh, those early discoveries, um, you know, uh, when they were first commercialized by Sony, um, uh, I think in 1991, um, there was not a clear idea of how big this would eventually be, mm -hmm. right? They were thinking, oh, okay, this could be an interesting battery for a camcorder uh, <laughs> or for a photo camera. Uh, and they weren't thinking that this would someday become something that's in electric vehicles that's yeah. used for grid scale energy storage, right? That same lithium ion battery could find application um, and, and be what saves us from global warming, right? In some ways, right? That was something <laughs> that uh, wasn't even conceptualized, but that then took another 30 years, right? Or 20 to 30 years to yeah. start to become something that was commercially viable in a much uh, wider range of technologies. So yeah. um, that's sort of the time scale that fundamental science takes to go uh, from laboratory to having impact. Um, and something similar will probably be true for uh, electrifying chemical synthesis as well, that um, we'll start to see small realizations of it in the next decade. Many will be skeptical because the economics just won't make sense. Mm -hmm. But as time passes and decades pass, we uh, continue down the cost curve and things become more economical. And so uh, we have to always try to uh, place ourselves uh, uh, in such a way that we're seeing the world uh, in the future, uh, right. that we're developing things for the future world without being constrained by what feels like is possible today. Uh, and that requires sometimes kind of freeing yourself from things that we've heard a million times to say, you know what, I can see the world being different. And because of that, I think this could work. Um, and that's that's hard to do, but it's it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, on on you know on the topic of freeing ourselves from our current mindset in some ways and trying to see the future, um, I had a question on that in terms of like how do you clear your mind? Do you have any tactics or tips or things that you do to clear your mind? Yeah. to do the kind of research you need to be doing, thinking about the future, not instant gratification or overnight yeah. results. And Absolutely, yeah. Um, th this is something that my mom is the best at in the world. So she, she will, she'll, anytime like, you know, as a kid, something would worry me, she would just say, uh, you know, one no five dollar, right? So that's just like, you know, don't, don't fear, right? There's nothing to fear, right? She's just like, why, why, why do you care? Like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That, it was, huh. that just doesn't matter, right? Right, and so, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a mentality that really enables risk-taking. Uh, I mm. think uh, when you realize that you're not defined uh, by how something that you try to do as to how it goes, right? So, ah, interesting. Um, you know, it's nice much easier to take risk when uh, you know that uh, you are who you are. And, uh, you know, we often say that we're defined by our work, right? That it's a yeah. good thing to be defined by these things that you do. And there's some truth to that, right? Um, uh, you know, it's good to take that pride but we shouldn't let our work define us, right? Uh, <laughs> at the same time, right? We should define our work and not, uh, not the inverse process, hopefully. And yeah. um, that can be liberating, right? That you know, we, we can take big risks and try to have enormous impact, knowing that there's a good chance that we'll fail in doing so, right? This, this vision of electrified synthesis is uh, such a different world, right? Uh, it looks nothing like the world that we live in today, that we would just be taking air and water and electricity uh, and somehow that would make all the chemicals and materials that we need. It sounds like science fiction almost, right? Yeah. Um, but we uh, pursue it knowing that, hey, look, there's a good chance I might fail, but uh, it's better to fail having tried to change the world uh, than, uh, than 
uh, to succeed not having tried. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's what it kind of comes back to. And and what part of this is like I think dreaming, and because I think you talked about somewhere we dream about catalysts and the way yeah. we, and the way they dance with molecules. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what part of this is uh, your research or your work is dreaming versus doing? Yeah, dreaming is uh, a very critical part of it. Um, you know, I think my sometimes my favorite uh, weekends, and this is the way my wife finds me very funny, is that I like <laughs> to just put a blank piece of paper in front of me and just start sketching um, <laughs> with nothing else. And I, and I call this uh, getting lost in my own thinks which is something that also doesn't make sense to her. So she thinks it's a very odd thing to do. Like, it's just to kind of want to like, you know, shut the door and just think, right? Uh, and then let yep. your thoughts kind of run away um, as you're exploring concepts. And uh, it's just a lot of fun being able to do that. And um, I, I think that that open-minded sort of exploratory thinking where you feel somewhat un- unconstrained uh, is important for big picture vision. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, though, uh, we have to show that we can get things done um, uh, and put those concepts into practice. Uh, and uh, one can uh, motivate people on vision for some period of time, but eventually they'll want to see results and tangible yeah. things that they can believe in. Uh, and so we have to always be pushing on both, right? Um, uh, changing the vision and uh, uh, improving the vision based on the latest uh, factual, concrete things that we know, um, and then changing what we do on a daily basis with the experiments in the lab, uh, based on how that vision is now altered. So there's a uh, one has to be able to push on both of those um, to really you know, succeed in in doing the science. Yeah, and and uh, taking that small bit of tidbit you talked about, like seeing the results. I mean, when you see something, you say it's working or not working and you go back and try something else. And that, at least that's my version of chemistry lab in my yeah. <laughs> school. But uh, right, right. Um, <clears throat> can you, if, if I were to ask you, like taking that Africa exam, example you gave yeah. me earlier on, like, you know, can you describe like a before and after if a, for a farmer growing rice in Africa? Yeah. Like what is the world today and what do you see with if if the technology that you're working on yeah. actually pans out and really you know scalable yeah definitely so for, for the uh, average farmer in sub-saharan africa uh, they find that it's very difficult to get high crop yields uh, per unit area of land uh, because in part they under fertilize uh, their oh, land interesting. Uh, and that's uh, because uh, fertilizer prices in sub-Saharan Africa are between two to four times that the rest of the world. Uh, it's surprising, right? One would think, you know, why not just bring in these fertilizers, bring them into the ports and yeah. uh, pass them out and uh, and solve this problem. Uh, but it turns out the distribution of the fertilizers is intrinsically expensive hmm. because there's no infrastructure for distribution. So uh, this is a failure of centralized governments uh, to do well for their people. And it's, uh, you know, in some ways one can't blame them because they're trying to solve short-term problems. You know, there, there are people who are starving and they want to solve that. Uh, and it's hard then to make the long-term investments in roads, uh, in pipelines, uh, in trucking and in port infrastructure, et cetera, uh, that enables you to cheaply move goods around. That's something that a lot of the rest of the world is able to do pretty effectively. So even though you can get the fertilizers to the port, getting them from the port to the farmer adds so much cost to the final product. Uh, And that's what we want to change. So uh, you can imagine a device that uh, you connect to a solar panel, which is uh, present locally, uh, 
uh, and that device needs to breathe air and it needs to take in water. Uh, it can take the nitrogen from the air and hydrogens from water uh, and combine those to make NH3, so that's ammonia. Uh, and that ammonia then is this one of these key uh, ingredients of fertilizer um, mm. that can be made right there locally. So um, one can uh, move past the conventional supply chain uh, and yep. overcome failures in infrastructure um, by doing this uh, sort of approach. So that could conceivably lead to cheaper fertilizers. Uh, but the key part right now is that the system uh, that one would deploy today would still be too expensive. Uh, and that's where the research really comes in, is figuring out uh, how can we make uh, this device work faster and how can we make the components of it cheaper? Um, how can we give it more longevity so, so that it'll last long enough to successfully operate in the field? Right now, these are still uh, small lab-scale prototypes, uh, which have undergone significant improvements in, in just the last two years since we started working on this sort of technology. Uh, but there's still many years ahead of us uh, to get this to a place uh, where it's commercially viable. And that's where the fundamental science can continue to contribute uh, to make this sort of vision uh, a reality. Working towards that, making them faster, cheaper, do you also work with industry uh, partners that actually are doing something in the space as well? Because, I mean, for example, companies that are actually manufacturing fertilizers today, yeah. Are they, are you, do you look at them as partners, competitors, or what's the relationship there? Because they have the money, they have the deep pockets. Definitely. Uh, and yeah, uh, we benefit a lot uh, from these sorts of conversations. So we, um, and this is one thing I really appreciate about, about MIT, is that uh, they really try to foster connections with industry. So one good example of that is the MIT Energy Initiative. Um, even before I started, uh, they helped connect me to industry. Um, without feeling that, uh, you know, there's some places where working with industry is seen as being a negative because it yeah. means that, oh, you're, uh, you're too applied or your thought yeah. process is polluted by profit motive or something. Uh, but the truth is that they have practical experience, right? They see how these things scale up. They know uh, how it behaves in the real world. Um, and we learn so much from them, right? The, the fundamental problems that we choose to solve uh, are informed by real world knowledge. Um, and we have to bring together all these diverse stakeholders, right? Um, people who are in industry, uh, policymakers, uh, people doing the fundamental science in an academic lab. Uh, and only if they all speak to each other can we accelerate uh, the development and implementation of new technology. So those conversations have been very, very helpful for us in terms of understanding um, what we had poorly conceptualized, uh, what we thought are problems that really aren't problems. Yeah. Uh, what we should really be solving uh, in this context. So, Karthish, I, I, this might be a complete tangent, but I was curious. Like, I was reading about the Delhi uh, under lockdown for air pollution, and this, mm -hmm. this is happening every almost every year. And yeah. Yeah. any of this related to what you're doing at all? Or I'm, I'm just curious. Like, yeah. Uh, because what I learned was the cause of the smog was some crop burning in the neighboring state or something like mm -hmm. that. And I was wondering if some of the applications of what you're working on might be able to address this kind of challenges in the real world? Definitely, yeah. So uh, in, in many ways, our uh, reliance on fossil fuels uh, combined with uh, ways in which we manage crops um, and, and other things that are uh, more uh, innocent in a way, like you know, uh, putting out fireworks, right? And things like that. <laughs> they all contribute <laughs> uh, to smog and uh, uh, you know, evident pollution that we visibly see uh, in big cities. Uh, and these technologies can definitely be a part of mitigating and reducing that. So um, 
uh, as an example, uh, our, our group is developing ways in which uh, you can generate uh, fuels that are cleaner. So for instance, ammonia uh, is good, not just as a fertilizer, but it could conceivably be used as a fuel as well. So uh, it has much more energy content. Uh, you're starting with nitrogen and water, and you're making a much more energetic molecule that if you were to then use that as a transportation fuel, in some contexts, that could help to eliminate the smog that's produced uh, when the fuel is combusted. Because when you combust ammonia, you make just nitrogen and water as end products. Now, mm. there's still challenges because ammonia is corrosive. Uh, do you really want to be handling that as a consumer um, uh, outside the context of farming or in other areas, right? So there are many questions surrounding that. Um, mm. uh, but there are ways in which, uh, for instance, um, uh, as, as uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, you know, going into the future become less common. Uh, even natural gas combined cycle power plants will probably at some point start to become less common. Um, and at that point, uh, the technologies that we're developing whereby uh, you can take a renewable electron uh, from solar or wind, uh, react that, uh, use that to react uh, certain uh, constituents of air and water to make a fuel, um, that could be a much more sustainable paradigm that in turn helps to limit uh, the emissions that we make. Sounds so, I want to live in that world. I mean, it sounds so. <laughs> yeah, things that we hope, right? I hope yeah. that, you know, the day I retire or, yeah. or, or something that, you know, we'll be able to sit, sit back and enjoy, yeah. uh, you know, what the world has achieved in that time frame. Um, yeah. Sometimes yeah. progress can feel slow, right? Uh, sometimes right. there's right. periods of years where that horizon feels like it's getting further. Uh, and then there's uh, rapid technological progress and rollout uh, in a couple of years that erases what you, uh, you know, a decade uh, uh, of how long you thought it would take for something to become real. So um, there def there's it, this roller coaster ride at times that one, yeah. that one can experience. Yeah, talking of um, sometimes it could be slow and sometimes there might be dark moments mm -hmm. that sort of make you the Socratic method of questioning what, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Do you have any such dark moments in your career so far where you felt like uh what am i doing it's you know this is exceptionally important because one can paint a very rosy picture right that um that one sequentially has gone from doing uh one thing to another and there are no concerns along the way um i think it's very common for people to sort of question uh what they're doing and why they're doing it mm -hmm. um uh, but it's less common for people to be open about the fact that yeah. they're questioning those things, right? So, um, you know, there are definitely things that we try to do here uh, that make it easier to have those conversations. Um, and so, you know, our, our group certainly spends time talking about, like, you know, how do you do science while being happy doing science, right? So uh, there are definitely like very broad issues surrounding uh, graduate student happiness, mm -hmm. uh, avoiding depression as a graduate student. Um, because this is often the first time in one's life that you're trying to solve a problem so difficult that you may fail for years trying to do it. Um, whereas in classes that we take and other experiences uh, surrounding education before that, we've usually, you know, if we're doing poorly in a class, well, at least it's over at some point, right? And you can somehow put it behind you and be done. <laughs> but with research, this problem kind of chases you. Like you mm. keep trying and you keep trying different things. And before you know it, it's been a semester, it's been a year, it's been two years. Uh, and that can sometimes cause one to look at their work and be like, am I doing something wrong? Mm. Right. And I remember this as a graduate student myself, right? There was a period of time where I was tackling what I thought were very, a very risky problem. Um, mm. uh, and something, uh, that uh, was tough to solve, and it 
um, you know, I, I had dreamed of this big vision uh, that I wanted to achieve. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking like a year later, wow, like I've gotten nowhere. Like, you know, is this because uh, uh, I'm not a good scientist, right? Huh. And you, you wonder at those moments, right? Yeah. And I'm yeah. uh, very thankful that, you know, I was surrounded, um, you know, by uh, my uh, parents and sister uh, and, and also surrounded by uh, very good friends I had made at that point in graduate school. Um, who helped me kind of see that, no, you know, you're working on something tough uh, and that's okay. And just to laugh, right. You know, just to laugh at it, right. In a way, you know, it's, it's very liberating to, uh, to laugh at our failures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you, when you start to see the comedy in it, then life becomes better. Right. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, that anything, anything that feels frustrating to the extent that we can recast it in a way that uh, we can find the humor in it, uh, then that can be very uh, helpful. Um, but that conversation doesn't always happen, right? I think for many, when they face that moment uh, where they've been trying something for a year or two, mm -hmm. they start to give up and they start to feel exasperated and they don't want to keep going. Uh, and uh, it's unfortunate because that's often because they haven't built around them uh, the social structure that they need to support them in that endeavor. Um, uh. And uh, But you can't, but I, one can't also just say that it's not them having built it, right? Uh, you know, my, my social structure isn't something that That's I true. I built. It came to me. I had it the day I was born, right? Uh, in many ways. Yeah, there's uh, definitely so, some part of luck and destiny in that as well, for sure. Absolutely. And you know, uh, I think the sooner we realize that, that um, there are uh, big differences in kind of what we start with in life, right? Mm. Um, uh, the more empathy that we get out of that uh, uh, for someone who is struggling, um, right? Whether... Uh, I, you know, I remember one of my neighbors once uh, a few years ago told me this story about uh, his own dad, uh, who was a teacher, uh, and his dad, who was a teacher, uh, he felt that any student who wasn't doing well was either dumb or or lazy, and that was his <laughs> uh, his perspective on it. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, one sometimes sees that in, in education, mm. right? That yeah. uh, it's hard to empathize uh, with someone who's struggling with something, but when we realize like that struggle has so many dimensions to it on a given day, right? Um, that struggle at a time in one's life can be just because a, com a concept is hard or it can be because of other things happening in our lives at the time. Um, uh, it can be because uh, we didn't have a certain degree of support and privilege and certain things that we came into, right? And it just reminds us that, you know, when, uh, only sometimes when we ourselves go through a difficult time do we then gain that empathy to make sure that we uh, view others in that, uh, or view others yeah. that, that benefit of the doubt and and help them through that without even knowing that maybe they're going through something difficult, right? We don't always talk about the difficult things going on in our lives, but at least we can, uh, without even knowing it, still say, you know what? It doesn't matter whether I, whether there is something going on or not. We should just be kind in that way, right? Uh, no matter what we do. Having the conversation, having the people around, opening up about it and, and, and um, yeah, putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Sometimes it's hard, but trying uh, to see where they may be coming from and not making uh, assumptions or statements that they're lazy or dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty neat. Uh, hey, uh, Kartish, I know we are coming on top of time, but just a couple of quick questions. Um, sure. One is around, uh, I think I saw this on your tweet, uh, art should comfort the disturbed and the disturbed <laughs> <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was really cool. I, I do art and I've been drawing and painting ever, all my life yeah. uh, since I was a six year old. 
mm-hmm. and uh, it just caught my attention and i said yeah yeah because i love doing art that actually makes people think and yeah. uh, think with a different um, lens yeah uh, w- what's your perspective on this quote that you put like art should yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going on a run one day on the, on the Charles River and I, I saw this quote and it like it just captured like you know it captured for me not just art but it captured um, it captured the most expansive definition of art mm, uh, art being exactly. almost anything that we touch even science is art in its exactly. own way right exactly. uh, we're trying to find meaning in the world uh, and and convey that meaning to someone right often in visual form uh, and that's how we share a lot of our data right um, but uh, this notion of um, that, you know, if, if our work doesn't somehow surprise us uh, or disturb, I take loosely in this way, right? Sure. It should disturb us. It should yes. uh, break us out of what we're used to. Uh, it should change the way we think. Uh, and that's why I've always liked the Apple mantra of, of think different, right? Think different. It's just so very true. Uh, it's better to do something different than it is to do something that's known to work uh, oh. and give it, you know, that, that is, um, been important uh, to me. So like our, our, my, our own wedding this summer, it was like very much an experiment in that, <laughs> in the sense that we, we tried to flip everything upside down, uh, like all the way from, you know, the way we do the invitations, you know, we did it like a presidential campaign announcement. Just I fun. saw the whole website uh, with, uh, we approve this message, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, and, and you know, there, there's always a risk in doing that, right? That the yeah. message could really fall flat, right? You know, people have an expectation of what a wedding invitation should look like, that <laughs> it should be regal and be from Manica cards and yeah. it should, uh, you know, there's a certain way that it should look right. And, uh, uh, but taking that risk and even if it doesn't go as well, at least you try to do something different mm. in the process. Right. So, um, you know, we did some, uh, uh, videography for the wedding, like building a, a trailer for it and trying to tell our story. And just, you know, these, these are, uh, funny sort of ways in which, uh, one can try to, uh, gain some enjoyment, um, uh, yeah. in life. And, Take something like a wedding, which sometimes can be very stressful, right? Yeah. Uh, and just uh, by looking at it differently and trying to uh, uh, kind of uh, shake up the, the standards and expectations and, and kind of turn everything upside down, that one can uh, make it more enjoyable in the process, right? Uh, and, yeah. and, and bring it bring it even more meaning in that form, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great thing you said. I mean, I, uh, I think everybody should listening should take away that one lesson like try something new some something it's better to do something different than to settle with the so-called wisdom than what we have the yeah. crowds right definitely yeah. uh, uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions sure. and you don't have to answer them that rapidly but okay. um just really again trying to understand or learn from what you've uh, gained in your life uh, experiences uh, any particular books that come to your mind that you've gifted a lot or that you've learned from it's hmm, a good question. So, uh, growing up, uh, you know, this book, uh, the, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo was like, I think my yeah. favorite, <laughs> um, there's something about the complexity of the tale, um, the way in which so many unexpected things happen and all the mystery of it that, uh, you know, I'm not sure why I like it so much, but, <laughs> sure. but I, but I do think that the fact that it has a lot of layers of complexity, that's something I like, uh, a lot, uh, in storytelling. And, and talking about books, have you, uh, do you write? Do you, have you written 
much at all or uh yeah so po- poetry is something that i do um Got so <laughs> uh this is this is uh th- these were my earliest attempts to like win over uh my my wife uh, <laughs> uh was writing her poetry actually <laughs> so, uh, so that, hey, that, that's still, at it. <laughs> it somehow worked it somehow worked uh when i thought it wasn't working at the very beginning for in terms of me convincing her to go out with me uh that i knew nothing to do but to pick up a pen and so uh some some of it's just silly um mm-hmm. um uh and uh you know it's just really desire to you know uh uh find your poetry i like for some reason just the rhythm of it and the writing of it um that's where i found like the most continuing satisfaction in in writing yeah yeah and and talking of writing if you could write anything on a full moon that the world can see what would you write Mm. I would I would want more time to write poetry for family I think uh um, oh, I think there's there's so much uh to be told about like the stories of our ancestors yeah. um that are very easily lost I think at least in Indian culture a lot of this is word of mouth and we yeah. haven't always recorded as much of our family history uh and I think we're we're in that delta generation right where a lot is changing in one generation uh and a lot of stories are getting lost in the process So if if I if I had time more time to write I would be writing more about family, like whatever yeah. you know we can we can pick up and still put together about what we knew about four or five generations ago right there are all these stories my grandma used to tell yeah my dad and mom luckily remember a lot of these things but since our grandparents have passed away mm-hmm. a lot of that knowledge is now kind of at risk of disappearing right if we don't you know make something of it but poetry is a neat way to express it um I think another way is just to you know video documentaries of family history and trying to like find the themes and the meaning in it all so that I've been meaning or intending to do but haven't found the time to actually do uh I've been kind of writing kind of the family history now in a Google Docs document oh neat I record as much of this as I can and find the themes with the hope someday of transforming this into something so uh I hope that that continues but I think broadly is something that the Indian community needs to really make sure that we don't lose in this delta generation that we have right so much is changing but we shouldn't mm-hmm. lose all the old lessons and stories that we have embedded in our in our wow, culture. Wow, yeah, super powerful. It's very very cool. Love it. Love it. Um knowing what you know now, what would you advise your young teenage self? It's hmm. a good question. Um I think looking back, um you know, I, I think I'm very happy now looking back knowing um that all that hard work i put in like led to something um that i'm very happy with now um uh and this is something my wife and i often talk about are, are different undergraduate experiences yeah uh i feel like uh you know outside of eating meals uh i was always laboring away at something that i loved uh wow. that was uh work related in some way right either studying a textbook or uh going to the uh, the uh, the laboratory that i worked in to like really push these experiments that i was excited about um and i i'm very lucky that i had a group of friends that um that through lunch and dinner and those experiences like we really stuck together um uh but i can also see how like my wife's experiences in undergrad where i think she really got to know like uh, a a much larger group of people oh. and um uh you know valued sort of that social experience yep. even more that that uh has empowered her in many ways as uh, as well so uh, i think in some ways i want to kind of mix our experiences right i yeah. think uh, i would still probably almost do what i did but i would even more value that time that i had with people mm. during the undergraduate years that's something that i uh, don't think and even going back before that right i think there's probably more ways that i could have uh spent more time with family in india especially before our grandparents passed away and all those sort yeah. of things right those are 
things that I can't go back now and do. Um, but uh, if I could go back, I'd tell myself to, you know, spend more time with people. people. Uh, spend uh, more time with people. Yeah. yeah. Super powerful. And uh, lastly, if people want to connect with you, learn more about your work and where you're going, what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, so the, our uh, uh, website, uh, mantiram.mit.eu, is uh, like a really good starting point uh, for starting to learn about things that we're interested in, but my contact information is on there as well. So uh, you know, anyone who wants to reach out can find my uh, email address on there, kartish at mit.edu, and, and reach out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kartish. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thank you. I wish you all the best. Uh, it's a lot of fun kind of... Uh, uh, learning about your uh, oneself through the process of, of talking about it, right? So yeah. uh, it, it's neat when a conversation like this kind of helps you recognize something that you should uh, that you should do differently, or uh, or even looking back and 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 seeing some clarity and kind of the, the life that one has had. So I appreciate that. Thanks so much. <laughs>